this is a powerful and clear word of how we see God in all that is. And we're going to see more of that this morning. Um, John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to that. John chapter 1. For those who were not here last week, throughout this entire Advent season, we're just looking at 18 verses, that's all. And today, just three of them, really. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And let us stand, because we will remember that this is indeed our Father's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Back when I was a college student, and that was a while ago, I spent one summer in Japan. It was a short-term uh, mission. I went there with a number of other college-age students from all around the U.S., and at the end of our time there, we decided to do what so many Japanese people do, and that was we, we wanted to climb Mount Fujiyama. Um, it's a bit of a pilgrimage. For some people, it's a religious pilgrimage. Thousands and thousands of people do this every year. In fact, the weekend before I decided to do it, I read about a couple, both of them about 100 years old, who had climbed the mountain. So I thought, there's hope for me making it to the top. Well, I started out not only with those 20 other college students, but also with the young family I was living with, not young family, the family I was living with, they were an older couple. Well, we started together, but the older couple couldn't go as fast, so the college students went ahead, I stayed with them, but it became colder and windier than we had expected, and my family decided they'd stay behind. And I thought, all right, I'll go up faster catch up with the other students so that I can climb with them. But somehow I must have taken, I must have taken uh, the wrong path because eventually I didn't see very many people going up the hill and I kept seeing people come down the hill. And they kept saying a Japanese word to me and I didn't speak very much Japanese, but the word was abonai, abonai, abonai. I thought, what does that mean? I think that's that word that means hang in there. Uh, <laughs> don't give up. Keep going. And I would say, Arigato gozaimasu. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, I would keep going, very much encouraged by them. What well, got to be colder and colder and windier and windier. And I, I began to realize that nobody else was going up the hill. And ju people just kept coming down and trying to say something to me until eventually I looked around and there was nobody else except one more group came coming down. And quite firmly, I remember them saying, Abunai, Abunai. And I said, Arigato gozaimasu. Thank you very much. And I kept going, but as I went, it became colder and windier and colder and windier. And, and some of you here in Pasadena may not understand this, but when the wind blows in your face and, and, the, uh, and it's a bit of mist that is going on, it's like ice that's penetrating right into your forehead. And it became so hard. There was nobody else on the hill. I also remembered that just a little bit before, another Bible scholar, his name was J. Barton Payne, had passed away on Mount Fujiyama, and I started becoming very concerned. It was so cold, and it was so miserable, that I came to a point that I didn't think I could go on. Um, 
There's an old Mark Twain quote that I'd always laughed about, but I started to take very seriously that uh, not only at that moment was I willing to die, I was anxious. I was so miserable and so frustrated. I didn't think that I would at all make it, and I couldn't understand where everybody else was until this group of professional mountain climbers, they were all Japanese students, came, and one took my right elbow, the other took my left, and took me up to the top of the hill. I found out that only about a dozen of us made it to the top that night. Because what had happened was a typhoon had hit Mount Fujiyama. And as I could tell, it must be Japanese speakers here in this 11 o'clock service. The word abunai does not mean hang in there. It means danger. <laughs> Turn around. Yeah, nobody was supposed to climb up to the top of the hill. Now, there's so many things that I, I'll tell you the rest of that story some other day. But I wanted to tell it today because of this. I... My life could have been changed. Many things could have been better if only I had understood that one word correctly. A word was spoken. It was a word that should have helped me. But because I didn't understand it, it didn't change anything. Now, let's think about that in relationship to this text that you and I are looking at. In the beginning, John says a word was spoken. Uh, last week, those of you who are not here, I pointed out that Jesus is called the word by, G by John, who wants to tell us the story of somebody who changed his life. But he calls him a word because this word communicates God to us. He tells us about how we're supposed to live. But what if that word that helps you to know God and helps you to understand how you were meant to live is a word that you don't understand? What if it's a word like that word Abunai was to me? What then? How are we going to understand it? And that's what the rest of this prologue, verses 1 through 18 of John's gospel, is all about. John is going to tell us how you and I can understand this word so that you and I can know God and so that you and I can live life as it was meant to be lived. You ready to look at it? Today, we're only going to look at one of the ways that we can understand this word. We can understand this word that explains God to us through everything that was made, through everything that was made. Three lessons. Number one, our entire world was made through our Savior. Look again at verse three. Through him, through this word, through this one in verse 17, we're going to find out is Jesus. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. I pointed out last week that you can't really understand John chapter 1 unless you read the book of Genesis. They start in the very same way. In the beginning, in the beginning. In some ways, John 1 is simply a commentary on, an explanation of the whole creation account. And in Genesis, God created by speaking. He spoke a word, there was nothing. He spoke and it came into being. He spoke at first, let there be light when it was darkness and light came into being. But the thing that John wants us to know now is that that word was not some force. The word is a person. Therefore, everything in this universe was created by a person and it has purpose. In fact, if you look through that early part of John's gospel, do you see all those personal pronouns? He was with God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, listen to me. 
One of the consistent messages of the Bible is that everything in our cosmos, everything in our world, is not simply here as a random, random thing that has taken place, but is a purposeful design of our Creator. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I think I have it here. For by Him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible things created by Him. Invisible Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And in case you wondered, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Uh, Paul also drives this home in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us who are Christians, there is but one God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, I've got to stop. Does this make any difference for you to know that the world that you and I are in was made through the agency of the very same one who came into this world and gave his life for you and me? For me, it changes everything. It changes everything. Just like, I know we have artists in our church, like every great painting... There's the signature of the one who created it. So if we have eyes to see it, everything in our universe, if we can but see it, bears the signature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, everything that he's made can be misused and it can be abused. We will see in a few moments he made you and me in his image. And a part of that is we have the choice to use what he has made in the right way or in the wrong way. And again and again and again, we've gone wrong, haven't we? And and we've done damage to the world that he's made. But seen aright, when God made it, he said, it's good. It's good. And at the end, he said, it's very good. I'm struggling here to try to express to you how important this is. Um, If you go to London, if you go to London and you go into St. Paul's Cathedral, the tomb is there of the architect, Sir Christopher Wren. And if you look in that, it's just one of these striking statements right there at the burial place. It says, reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. If you want to know something about the greatness of the God that we have come to worship in this place, look around you. Again, he's given us freedom to abuse it. But he's given us the privilege to enjoy it. And because of that, Christians, we look at our world in a different way. I guess one of the things I'd want to say immediately is that don't you think you and I should be the ultimate ecologists? That that we see everything around us and when we see people destroying the world, that we would want to step in and, and pray that decisions would be made, whether politically or in other ways, that would take care of the world that God has put us in. We, we who are believers know that God put us here and told us to rule and to take care of this world in that loving and compassionate and wise way that he has done it. So we should be the ultimate ecologist. But then also, as Dr. Ressler was speaking today, what I think is this, that when a scientist takes the time and begins to see pattern and order in natural phenomena, that scientist shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because the God who made it is a God of order and a God of pattern and a God of beauty. There was a scientist in an earlier generation. His name was Johannes Kepler. 
He said that a scientist who is also a follower of Jesus and has read these verses has the privilege of thinking God's thoughts after him. Don't you think that's good? Privilege of thinking God's thoughts after him. Well, I sent that little comment to a couple of our scientists here in the church and asked them what they thought of that. And that's what led to me asking Dr. Ressler to give his testimony today. You've heard it. I took a part of that. See, none of you are ever going to write me again, are you? Knowing that what you write me might make it into the sermon. Well, I'll condense it. You heard a part of this, but I want you to see what Michael had to say. Every believing astronomer, he wrote to me. There it is. And there are many of us in institutions sprinkled throughout the country. I want to underscore that as well. I've had the privilege over the past years to be in so many academic institutions. And I've been so surprised at how many people who are in the field of science have a deep and personal relationship with Christ. There are many love passages like Psalm 8, 19, 148 and Job 38. I often say I don't need a building to worship God. My cathedral is the dome of the dark moonless sky out in the desert. But my favorite verse, and you heard him cite this, my favorite verse in thinking about God and his creation and how I respond to him in a more, is a more obscure verse in Job. And I really like the way the NIV translates it. Job 26:14. And these are the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? That is the God, Michael said, I see when I look up at the sky, whether it's with my bare eyes or with the largest telescopes in the world. Yet that is the God that sent his son to die for me. And I wanted you to see it because I love this last phrase. How cool is that? How cool is that? To be able to look at everything in this world and know it isn't there by chance. To be able to know that we have the opportunity of studying and discovering and learning and not being afraid that somehow science is going to contradict the one who made it. It's one of the privileges that we have as Christians. And it's not just for the scientist. It's for, it's for almost every area of learning and endeavor. You know, the artist or the musician, we have so many here in our church, who, who seeks to make something, create something that captures our emotional response the something that's happening in this world, the something that we see, is simply expressing something of the beauty of the God who has made it. Uh, the physician who uses medicine and, and sees healing taking place. Sometimes we're told the use of medicine is in opposition to praying for healing. Let me tell you, they're both a part of God's creation. The physician who is able to learn and to use medicine to see people become whole is able to say, Father, thank you for what you've made. Thank you for giving me the opportunity both of discovering and of administering. The same thing could be said about area after area of life. You know, this is a message that in many ways I wish every Christian high school student and Christian college student could hear. We have in our American culture, at least, this this wrong-headed notion that, that science and faith contradict one another. That, that even in, in the academic institutions, you can't really have academic freedom and investigate all and search for what is true and still be a Christian because you'll be limited. And I say that is simply not true. A Christian is one who is set free to investigate all that is here in this world. 
When I was doing my doctoral work at Cambridge, England, this was driven home to me as I was studying the Gospel of John. I came to that point where Jesus said, I am the truth. I remember closing my Bible and just thinking, how freeing that is. How freeing that is. That if we take the time and honestly and with integrity search for what is true in this world, where we're going to end up is the one through whom all of it was made. I don't know what you think about that, but, but I love the fact that we don't have to set our minds, our brains back on the, uh, on the wardrobes back here in order to come into church and to worship. Nor do we have to set our faith aside in order to go into the library and to do investigation. For all things were made by him. That means that everything in this world, we have the chance to see our Father's hands in it. We are called upon to use it in a way that honors Him. But it makes us people who can enjoy everything our Savior has made and given to us. Hallelujah. I should end there, but you know I'm not going to. Two more, two more brief points. This also teaches us there's only one creator, there's only one God, which means for us that we don't have to be afraid of anything in this world. There's nothing in this world greater than he is. Now look at verse 3 with me. I don't want you to miss this. The first phrase, through him all things were made. It's pretty comprehensive. But he adds another phrase. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Why did he put that there? Simply to be verbose, let me tell you, there is this idea, and I still see it in our world, there is this idea that is so persistent that there are sort of two gods. It's called dualism. It's a very convenient way of explaining uh, evil and suffering and pain in the world. You you attribute all of the good to the good God and all the bad to the bad God. Uh, In John's day, when he wrote the gospel, it was a problem that they were wrestling with. Zoroastrianism was, was dominant in this day. They had two gods, a god of light called Ariman, a god of darkness called Ormuzd. What you had to decide which, which one were you going to align yourself with. You, doesn't it sound a little bit like a more sophisticated version of Star Wars? You're going to be on the good side of the force. You're going to be on the bad side of the force. The problem is, the end is in jeopardy. Who's going to win? Which god will be more powerful? What does John say about this? Impossible, he says. That's not the world that we live in. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the light. The darkness cannot overcome it. Now, do you think that there's anything like that in our day as well? Or was this just speaking to a first century world? I tell you, I think even we who are churchgoers need to hear this again. So many times, all of the things that go well, we say, well, God bless me. When they don't go well, we say, well, the devil made me do it. Now, listen to me carefully. There are enemies in this world. I've talked about them before. There is the world we live in who, after centuries of people making wrong choices and sinning, has become a place where so much of this world has become affected, infected by it. So the systems of this world, we can't simply be a part of them. There is also the flesh, is what the Bible calls it, my own human inclinations, that I make wrong choices and I enter into addictions and patterns that must be broken. And there is the devil and evil powers that are indeed there. 
However, those enemies are not God. There is one God, and when He speaks and when we trust Him, those are the things that must fear. I simply want to make this point so that, brothers and sisters, you can have confidence whatever you face in this world. If there is an addiction and you're wondering, can tomorrow ever be different? He can come into your life and has the power to transform you. Do you believe that? It's what John is going to tell He says, I'm going to tell you the story of somebody who changed my life. And I can't just start in a manger. <laughs> I've got to start in the beginning. Uh, and he can do it. He's the only God because all things were made by him. If there are things we are afraid of in our government, if there are things we're so concerned about, about directions of media or the arts, I have to tell you this. At the end of the day, there is only one God who will triumph. For all things were made by him. John wants us to know at this Christmas season, I know it's unusual to think about the creation story at Christmas, but John says we must because we need never fear for this one who came into the world was the one through whom all things were made. And if you have received him into your life, he is present with you, and there is nothing in this world to be afraid of. And there is always, there is always hope because he made all things. Third, finally, I didn't quite know how to put this, so I'll put it this way and then you'll have to listen. We people are the apex, we're the height of what the Creator created. So that because we have the opportunity to grow and become more, to become like Him. Uh, Look around you, these people sitting here in church, the apex of what God created. Can you believe it? (laughs) Well, believe it. That is indeed the case. And look at what he says in verse 4. In Him was life. And that life, that was the light of men. He, he, he wants to talk about the unique place of human beings in the creation that God brought, brought about. See, in Genesis, it was dark, God spoke, and it was light. In Genesis, there was no life, God spoke, and there was life. But on the sixth day, everything changed. I may have pointed this out to you one other week, but I, I love it. poetry. Have you already picked that up? And some of the greatest poetry in the world is the Hebrew poetry. And, and some of the most beautiful Hebrew poetry is found in Genesis chapter 1. In some ways it almost gets you, uh, lulls you to sleep with, with its sing-song sort of rhythms. Uh, and God said, let there be, and it was. And God said, let there be, and it was. Then like in any good poetry or any good music, everything changes. The rhythm changes. The meter changes. And I want to show it to you. Instead of, and God said, let there be. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the rest of creation. There is something different about the life that you and I have from anything else in this universe. And then in verse 27, just take joy in the beauty of it. So this is what God did. He created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
male and female, he created them. And John puts it this way, in him was life. And that life was the light of people, telling people that they could live the way the creator meant for them to live. There is something that you and I share in common with this Jesus, this one who is called the divine word. Now, sometimes I I spend time at Princeton University and there's a professor there named Peter Singer who says we share life, but we share life with only animal life. Um, We don't share some special kind of life with God. The Bible tells us it's not true. And so you have to make a decision about which one of those you're going to believe. Uh, The Bible tells us that there are two different kinds of life, the kind of life that you just have in general in this world, plant and animal life. But there is another kind of life, Zoe, the life of God, life as God means life to be lived, sometimes translated abundant life, sometimes translated eternal life. And it's the way that John is telling us you and I can begin to live. Zoe, kind of like Pastor Tate's daughter. What a great name. Now she has to live up to it. It means for us this hope-filled statement that as you look at yourself, you'll say, I cannot be experiencing everything God meant for me to experience. That is not the life of God. But when we have this longing, longing that our lives would be more than they are, this is the light calling us to himself, telling us that if we will trust him, He will set our sins aside. He will give himself to us. He'll begin recreating, refashioning us. And at last, you and I will be able to live. You know, I I sent that note, Kepler's note about uh, the scientist can think God's thoughts after him. I sent it to Dr. William Iwan, who's a seismologist, because I thought we shouldn't just ask an astronomer who looks in the heavens all the time. We better go down into the depths for a while. And I liked what, what Bill had to say as well. He said, I think Kepler hit the matter on the head regarding how a scientist who's a Christian sees creation. Because I deal a lot with probability in my field. Seismology, you know, earthquakes. I hope we don't have those. But okay, We use it to define such things as risk. For example, the probability that a major earthquake will result in a certain level of damage. But more and more, I find we are using this concept of probability to describe our daily lives. The probability of rain tomorrow, the probability of a lightning strike and so forth. As a result, and I think he's right about this, many people have begun to accept that randomness is somehow at the core of everything we experience, even the existence of life itself. Notice this now. While it is true that randomness is an important concept in many areas, to make it the basis for human existence is neither logical nor mathematically justified. Without a creator, there is no purpose or intentionality in what occurs in life. So even though I use the concept of randomness in many aspects of my work, I do not live my life in randomness. I believe in purpose because I believe in a God of purpose who created the universe with a purpose and me in his image. See, this longing to see purpose in life is that Zoe within us. It's the word that's being spoken to us, wondering if we can understand it. Uh, Animals might be able to just live and survive, but not you and me. But not you and me. 
We need to find some reason for our living. And eventually, every thinking human being comes to see this. Um, Look, all of you are so young. Maybe you're not there yet. People who have been working their whole lives, their whole purpose has been their career or their home or their bank account. Then you hit that point at which you are retired. And they have the big dinner for you. I think you have the big dinner for you. And then you go home and, and they've given you the gold watch. And you say, this is it. You know there has to be more to live for. That that home, that bank account, that career, and even that gold watch are not going to last. The Old Testament says we have been built with eternity in our hearts. And that's what Jesus came to introduce you to. To know the God who at last can begin to enable you to live. In Him was life. And that life is the light of people. When you know Him at last, you know forgiveness of sins and the beginning, the beginning of real living. That light, He says, shines in the darkness. But the darkness still does not understand it. Do you? Do you? To all who will receive him, he will give power to become children of God. To come alive to God. To begin to live as as life was meant to be lived. Do you look sometimes back and say, I know that what I've been doing is not right. It doesn't bring me any fulfillment. There must be another way. And I tell you, there is. It begins when you trust this one, the maker of the universe. And it continues as this one who made the universe comes into your life and begins remaking you. Here on the second Sunday of Advent, we have looked at three little verses. But they're powerful, aren't they? They tell us about the world you and I live in. Sets us free to learn, investigate, to enjoy, and to use our lives to care for what God has given. Tells us about God, that there is only one. When we know him, there's nothing in this world to fear, and there is always hope that tomorrow can be different because all things were made by him. And it tells us about ourselves, that God meant for us to live life to the full, Life as God created it to be lived, but it only happens as you trust Christ and you continue to walk with him. And I just want to tell you, when you do, when you do, he will begin that work and he won't end until all of us, together with people of every tribe, language and nation, are gathered around the throne and singing, Worthy is the Lamb. That great song of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, You are worthy. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. And this is our Savior who gave his life that you and I can truly live. Alleluia. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I pray, as I do each week, that I've been faithful to your word. Where I have been, Father, use it to do your work in us. 
Father, if there are some who have come who have never trusted Christ and know that they need to begin to live, I mean live as you've made us to live, may this be the day that you draw them to yourself. May that light shine in their hearts so that they may trust Jesus even, even this morning. For the rest of us, Father, we may too be going through some challenging days. We need to turn our face again to you and to realize that you are the maker of all things and that you are sufficient for anything that we are facing. So we take this moment now at the end of our service to give these things and to give ourselves to you that we may live in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we have some of our prayer partners, some of our pastors. If they would come from wherever they are now and just take their place here somewhere near the front. We're going to be singing a wonderful song, Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. This song, singing worthy is the Lamb, thinking about that day when God has finished his work in us. Are you looking forward to that day <laughs> when, when I am and you are all that God would have us to be? As this is being sung, if there are any matters on your heart, people that you are praying for, even things that you would like to have someone join you with, just come out from wherever you are. Join these prayer partners who will be here. You see some standing right now in front of you. We would love to join with you and pray with you about any matter. Why don't we stand together, even as we let God work in our hearts and in our lives in this time of response?